0: Well, good morning. We're in John 21. We're just about to finish. We've had a couple of things happen in the last few weeks where we had Pentecost where we made a little detour there and and looked at that important day uh, in terms of the church calendar. And then last week we had Deborah share with us about the important ministry that's going on in Roatan. And so today we're going to be in John 21 and uh, we're going to finish up... Uh, That's at least my goal, (laughs) and uh, I've been working, you know, I just tell you, the struggle for a teacher, at least in my thinking is, is to speak in a way, you know, you're listening and you're trying to see some things on the screen, but it's mostly auditory, to have a topic or a theme that you can kind of remember when you walk out of here. Hopefully, it's not just while you're in here, but uh, often as a teacher, I'm trying to think, okay, what is this text about? What is the basic idea? What's the theme of it? What, what's in the middle of it? Or what, what, what is something that's going to, we're in John 21. We're going to begin at verse, we're going to start at verse 15 because we already worked up to that. But this particular passage is this, uh, if you will, reinstating uh, this uh, coming back to uh, the disciples and reinstating them and bringing them back to uh, following Jesus and uh, after, after the resurrection. And as you know, we've discussed this before, that uh, there was a good bit of failure that had occurred and and a good bit of problems with the disciples. And so now uh, in this 21st chapter, they go back fishing. And on your handout, I'm just reminding you from the last time, we're trying to go back to go forward. We're trying trying to go back, I think, in this passage to go forward. Because as you look at this again, you'll see uh, in this uh, section here, they go back to what's known. In 21, what do do they go do? They go fishing. Uh, These are fishermen. They're going back to go forward at what is known. They're going to go back fishing, and that's all they know at this point. In in, in addition to that, they they go back, if you will, to the place they started following Jesus. They're back at the Sea of Galilee. The same circumstances, if you'll recall, they'd fished all night, didn't catch anything, Jesus on the shore, he says, throw your net on the other side. They do, all of a sudden, here are all these fish. And that's exactly what happened previous in the Gospels. That they had been in, the, and, and, and the difference here is this interesting, that, that they go back to the place where they followed. The difference is this, in the Gospels, when this happened before, Peter, having seen this great miracle, falls down in front of Jesus and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That, that's interesting. In this case, in twenty-one, whenever he finds out it's Jesus, see what he does there. See it there in the text. Can you see that there? Verse seven. See it there. Somebody have a Bible here today? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Throws himself. He he goes to Jesus. Very different. Interesting. That having been with Jesus for a while and experienced him for a while. Even after the great failure of denying Jesus, he knows enough about Jesus that he jumps in the water to go to him first. I think that's an interesting thing you might want to think about meditate on. That having been with Jesus, having the same circumstances, this time he runs to Jesus instead of saying, depart from me, I'm a, I'm a sinful man. He, he must have learned something about the nature of Jesus, about the kindness of Jesus, that even after this great failure, if you will, that he had had uh, in denying Jesus, that he was uh, willing to then jump into the water. And so now we come uh, to what I'm going to say here is, uh, if this, uh, if you will, and this one here is going back to go forward to the place of failure. To the place of failure. We're going to work through this here. Going back to go forward. I'm often interested in in sports analogies, but um, uh, some of you are old enough to remember, and and I as well, um, that in 1966, um, the uh, Green Bay Packers had gotten to the championship but lost the last game. And uh, Vince Lombardi, the renowned coach, and you know, that's who the the trophy's named after uh, for the Super Bowl. I did hear him say the other day, though, that by all statistical analysis, that trophy needs to be changed. If it's going to be the winningest coach, it's going to have to become the Belichick trophy, which I'm sure everybody in New York will love. <laughs> yeah. But they're talking about, you know, the Bel- this doesn't have the same ring to it, you know? Anyway, Lombardi in, in in 66, they get close and miss it by one game. And he's got eight or nine pro bowlers, Jerry Kramer, uh, Fran Tarkin, or Bart Starr, uh, all, uh, Bart Starr, all of these guys. And... uh you know, they'd missed it by one game. That's not bad, you know. That's 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 close in horseshoes, you know. Um, but the report is, as you know, probably heard this story, that he begins football camp the next year. And all of these players sitting around and you know, and, and being great pro bowlers and he he stands up in front of them and holds up a football and says, Gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> and they go, Jerry Kramer's reporter said uh, slow down, coach, I'm taking notes. <laughs> you know. Kind of like they said about Terry Bradshaw. He he wasn't that smart. He couldn't spell cat if he spotted in the C and the T. <laughs> yeah, notorious football players. But, but you know, Lombardi's going back to saying, hey, this is a and, and he talked about tackling, blocking, running. The fundamentals. I'm told that John Wooden, who was the great basketball coach at UCLA, the Wizard at Westwood, that they called him that, that he taught his basketball players how to put on their socks. You ever read that? Maybe y'all are more interesting than I am. I read weird stuff. Yeah, he taught them how to put their sock this, how to put their socks on properly. I didn't know there was but one way. And how to tie your shoes. You know, he's taken those guys. Back to incredibly fundamental things to go forward. And of course, Lombardi's teams won the next year and won five championships right in a row. So, going back sometimes to the place of failure, going back to where things were matters. So, I want to look at this here in John 21. So, after Peter and they get to the shore, back at verse 9, I told someone, uh, told you several weeks ago that this term here. Is really important. You see, in verse 9, this event on the beach is around a charcoal fire. Charcoal fire. Now, you might notice here, uh, if you think about the setting on a beach, that that would be an unusual event, sort of, you know. There's a lot of charcoal on beaches. It doesn't wash up much charcoal. Not the beaches I've been to. Generally, what would you make a fire out of if you're out on a beach? Wood. Yeah, you know, or your friend's tent. Uh, You know, you could do that. We've done that before. We were thinking about that today. You you normally would, uh, but this is very intentional and very interesting because uh, in order for Peter and these guys to go forward, I want to suggest there's something going on here because if you run this word down, charcoal, just get a concordance and, and look at it, you'll discover it only shows up in one other place in the entire New Testament only one place. John 18. Actually, John 18. Me, remember, John 18, 18. If you flip over there or turn over there or refer over there, you'll notice something that happened at a charcoal fire before. Remember? Peter had denied Jesus three times around a charcoal fire. This is the only other occurrence in the entire New Testament of the word charcoal or the event of a charcoal fire. And so when I'm reading this, excuse me, some years ago, and I'm working through, and as I have said over learning to study the Bible, you don't just read a passage and forget about it. You, as you read, you remember, try to what we call keep it in context. So when I read that, 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 that alerts me to this, if you will, place of failure. That Jesus is taking him back. After they'd gone fishing, they went back to what they knew. They went back to where they'd met him. Jesus takes him back to a place that must have had some memory. You know, it's interesting that when we remember things, one of the most powerful memory devices we have is smell. You know? I walked into a place, we went to see my mom in Florida, where, I'm not going to say that, but I was telling Eric, we went on vacation, on Monday morning, we got up at 3.30 to catch our flight, on Thursday morning, we got up at 4.30 to go see my sisters in the hospital, and on Saturday morning, we slept until 5.15, you know, the thing is, all the old people like us were up too, (laughs) yeah, I can't sleep, Uh, uh, but you know, I've, I've walked into a place before when I go, that's my junior high cafeteria you know, in Kilgore, Texas. I walk in this place, we're not eating here. <laughs> Why? Oh my, I can see the lady with the, it, no, we're not eating here. We're not eating here. Because smell has a powerful place in our brain, in our lives, in our memory that takes us right back. Have you had that happen? You know, you, you, you've had that happen before. And, and, and sight, of course. What do you imagine here? A charcoal fire, the smell off a of charcoal, which is, again, not common in the ancient world. Peter smells it. Is he back there? Is he remembering that? Now, there's something fascinating going on here, I think, as I, can, as I read through this, that there's a conversation going on. And I, I just tell you, as a kid, I heard this lots of different ways. And you probably have too. And I'm going to try to give you a way, I think, that might be more accurate or might be what you've heard. Maybe, maybe you've already heard this. But in this conversation, Jesus says to him, Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I want to just touch here for a second because it's interesting. Notice what, what Jesus calls him. See it there? What is it? Simon, son of John, uses his whole name. You know, what would that suggest? (laughs) Some of y'all had my mom, I know. (laughs) Listen, when I heard this, Clifford Dean Sanders. I heard that last week, by the way. (laughs) When I got all those names strung together, I was in trouble. Or, or, or it could be, could be. Serious, Simon, son of John. In other words, Jesus is attempting to signal to him, "I want your attention here. There's something serious here." Now, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm using my, you know, some guy say called a sanctified imagination. I don't know if it's sanctified or not, but my imagination. I can only imagine with the olfactory system working, where you're smelling a charcoal fire. And where it's just been a matter of days where you were at one, which would again be maybe Peter's greatest failure in his entire life. That he's smelling that, he's seeing that. And in my mind, I can just see him running up to Jesus until he sees that and stops. Now the charcoal fire is kind of in his brain. And Jesus says to him, do you love me? Now, that happens three times, and we'll notice something here. Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We'll come back to that. And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to them, tend my lambs. And then he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, it says right here. The word there means to cause sorrow, sort of grieving. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. It's interesting to me. And I'm going to just suggest a couple things here that are based on some activity in the text. A lot of people have made a lot of hay over that Jesus is trying to get Peter to use the word agape. Jesus is using the word agape. Do you love me? Or agapeo. And and Peter is saying, Lord, I phileo you. It's the Greek where we get the word phileo or Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Or as my friend from there said, the city of brotherly shove is really what it is. That there's these two words. Well, there You know, there are four words in Greek for love, agape. Eros, Phileo, Sturgia, there are all kinds of words. And, and people want to make a big deal out of dictionary terms. And the dictionary is just where you find a term, and that's the basic idea. You know, the word that has like 62 different entries, you know. And so th- there's been a lot of talk that, that what Jesus is trying, and this maybe, maybe Peter, and Peter maybe thinks this, or Peter is at least grieved that this is going on. I'll tell you this. I don't believe Jesus is trying to grieve him. I think Jesus is trying to restore him. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did he let him say to him, I love you? Three. You know, you know sometimes when we have to go back to go forward, we got to face the pain or the struggle or the difficulty. I mean, none of us like pain. None of us like to go back to our failure. And we may have been raised in a family that, that you know, failure or, or, or sin or like that was, you know, just tragic and, you know, terrible. And so we develop the habit of not dealing with it. But, you know, that we, there, there's all kinds of problems that sets up when, when we don't lean into our failure or we don't lean into our pain and let Jesus deal with it. It doesn't seem to me it's possible that Jesus can be trying to do anything here other than restore him. And I'll tell you why. Peter may not understand it, but John does. Here's why Peter, Jesus uses the word agape, and P- Peter uses the word phileo. And so everybody reads this says, eh, Jesus is trying to squeeze an agape out of him, right? You can't make that argument. You can't. It's not possible. I want to teach you a little bit about Bible study. <clears throat> when you study the Bible, when you look at a word, um, it's important to go to the dictionary to understand what it basically means. But the dictionary isn't the final arbitrator. For instance, I'd use a word. We, uh, at the cafeteria, at the school sometimes, we'll have Brussels sprouts. And somebody will say, what do you got? We'll say, oh, they're what are they? They're bad right? They're bad. Let's look at the word up in the dictionary, right that. Now, when we go out to the car show this afternoon and we see that viper, what are you going to call it? Bad. (laughs) It's got a couple more A's in it. Bad. (laughs) It's word use that matters. It's word use. For instance, the word flesh in the New Testament depending on the context, can mean three different things. Humanity, Jesus, born according to the flesh, according to David, Romans 1. Two can mean limitation, John 3, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or third, it can be a way of life in opposition to God and his spirit, the works of the flesh are. So you better, you know, you need to find out how is it being used here? So in studying the Bible, it's okay to look it up in the dictionary. But what's more important is to determine how's the author using it. Because the author is the one that determines the context. And I want to just show you something here. Just so we can say what's going on here. I'm suggesting to you that Jesus is reinstating Peter even as painful as it is to him. Because he's having to just walk through it. And Jesus is taking carefully. This is why I want to suggest to you that this cannot be anything other than a change of words. Notice here, go back in John chapter 5. Go back to John chapter 5. And Jesus uh, makes these statements. John records in 519. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, These things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and the Father will show him greater works than these. So marvel. You want to take a guess at what that word there in verse 20, love is? Phileo. It's not agape. These two words mean the same thing. Basically, this is not a dictionary determination. If it says here that the father loves the son, Phileo, John in chapter five laid down a marker for you and for me to say, don't get hung up in the dictionary. Look how it's being used. So Jesus is not trying to squeeze an agape out of him. Jesus is not trying to manipulate him. Or to force him into using a term here. He's simply saying, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Why? Because you said three times you denied me. I'm willing Peter to take you through this. As painful as it was to him. Sometimes it is, isn't it? When we have to go through grievous admissions. Or we have to go back and deal with something that's been a failure in our life. It's how Jesus heals us. It's how... It's how he takes us from that place and gets us unstuck for the future. It's fascinating to me that in this passage here, imagine that Jesus is taking him back to the place of failure, not to rub it in his nose, not to, not to say, look what you did, but to allow him to get it out of his system and to be able to say, Lord, you know I love you. How about you? I've had times in my life when I've had to go back to the place of failure and say, i got to lean into this. Luckily, I hope you're like me. I've got good friends that I can tell them anything. And I can go to them and say, look, I I need to talk to you about something. Can can you help me process and work this out? This is what Jesus is doing. He's helping him work it out, get it out of his system. Go on, because without it suggest to you that Peter will live with this thing in his heart and in his mind for the rest of his life. So here is Jesus taking him back to the place of it. Not to hurt him, not to harm him, but to help him get over it. Is there anything in your life? Is there, I'm sure we all have. You know, I can identify a couple of places in my life where if left to myself, I'm going to run from them and avoid them. And, it, and as you know, they don't go away. But is there a place in your life or a time in your life where you would say, you know what, I need to go to Jesus or I need to go to a friend or I need to go to a good counselor and say, would you help me face this and get over it? Help me face it. Help me to deal with it and go on. Now, you know what I'm talking about because it's that thing that comes up when things happen. It's that thing that, that keeps surfacing whenever you feel like things are out of control or, or you've failed. It's that thing that keeps coming up that Jesus wants to help you process it out. I want to suggest to you this is what, you know, Marty and I talk about this. This is one of my favorite, it really is one of my favorite verses because I see in Jesus this master surgeon of the soul of saying, let's deal with it. Grievous to you, Peter? I know. Difficult for you? I get it. But I'm going to help you work through this so that through this process, you can get over it. So my question to me and you is this. Is there anything that you've been afraid to face? Is Is there something you've pushed down, kept it down, can't face it, can't deal with it, that you would say, I need to talk to somebody. Maybe you can just go to Jesus. and Maybe, maybe if your relationship with him is in that way, you can say, I, I can go talk to him. I can deal with it. Or maybe you need to talk to someone else. I, I, I'll, I think of this as just sort of a, it's kind of an interesting story, if you will, of, of a, a failure. Imagine that for decades you had a job. You were a fireman an insurance salesman, a gas station owner. And you tried your luck on all different kind of things. And you started a roadside restaurant in a rural community. And just about the time you started that, uh, construction of a nearby highway put you out of business. So you you, you were 68 years old and you'd faced failure time and time again. But you faced it and you went on. In fact, you made over a thousand pitches to investors to help you start a business, a a restaurant, a franchising business. And at 68 years of age, you finally found someone to do that for you. Seven years later, when you were 75, you sold this place for $15 million. Your name's Harlan Sanders, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I wish I was related to him. Uncle Harlan, yeah. <laughs> I'll take cousin, grandpa, nephew. I don't care. Yeah, you know what? He, he didn't let his failure finish. I, I I just I think that some of us have a view of God, or we've got a view of life or reality that our failure makes us feel like that God is finished with us because it's big. I'm just telling, I, mean, I don't know. I'm just saying in a room like that, listen, if you talk to me, I've processed it, I've worked through it, but I could take you back to a place in my life where I said, if that one thing right there had just not happened, that, if that, that one thing right there, if it just hadn't happened, man, but I had to face it. I remember meeting someone at a restaurant and sitting down with them and just breaking down in front of them and just saying, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe this happened can i talk to you about this will you help me luckily i have good friends like that that would do that so would you be willing this week i'm not asking you to create anything i'm not asking you to go dig up anything i'm asking you to just identify that thing that keeps coming up when the pressure comes on you that thing that keeps coming up that that memory that event that thing that it just keeps coming up. When you feel you've failed or you're out of control or life is not working, that's the thing. That's the thing. Commit to talk to Jesus about it. Commit to talk to God about it. Commit to talk to a friend about it. Now, the second thing here. Going back go forward to the primary motive i'm fascinated with what jesus said to peter not only this idea but he said do you love me do you love me the primary motive here is over do you love me do you love me do you love? i'm looking at that and i'm thinking okay he's taking peter back to go forward they've got to get this they've got to get this motive this matter in his life straight You said this way Our lives are so complicated and we got so many demands on us. I don't know about you, but I struggle at times to keep primary the motive of that. What I'm doing is I'm I'm doing it for love to God. I I saw a blog or a podcast the other day or something. I don't know. I've been in so many airplanes the last couple. My my brain's been pressurized. I don't know if it's working today. (laughs) It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. (laughs) said this, "Do you do the commandments of God without the heart of God?" It was an important question. I thought, like, "Do you do the commandments? Do you do the, the will of God without the heart of God? What, what we call that is morality. <laughs> I'm just a moral person. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to steal. I'm just a moral person, man. I'm better than that. I, that is this whole idea of I'm doing the commandments or I'm obeying God or I'm doing all these kind of things, you know, without his heart. I tell you, I have so much fun today. Two weeks ago before Deborah, Deborah um, was here last week, right? She was here last week. Okay, I told you. Um, the Lord, and I had this, I had some time just talk to the Lord. And the Lord just, I feel like in my spirit, he said, would you just do what you do because you love me? Quit trying to be successful. Quit trying to be smart. Would you just do what you do because you love me? And because you love people. i have been having more fun today teaching than I have in the last year. Because <laughs> I'm doing that, whether you know it or not. Whether you like it or not. We get so tied up in life. Success appears smart, good morality. And in the midst of it all, we lose the supreme motive. Jesus said, do you love me? Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Any life, any ministry, any activity that isn't fueled by love will run out of gas. I deal with this on a, you know, maybe I'm just weird. Well, don't answer that. Okay, please. I I just have to revisit this. I told y'all three or four years ago, some of y'all I I think are still praying. Some of y'all need to pray. You need to practice. I said to you several years ago, I said, um, at one point with school and this Sunday school class was killing me. It was killing me. And it wasn't because it's too hard to talk in front of people. I kind of got that down. Jim's been around me like, ah, that's not too hard. And it's not because I don't like to teach. It, it's because I was doing what I was doing to appear smart or whatever. It was killing me. And some of y'all, I said, if you don't pray for me, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Now I have to visit this. Okay, I don't know if you do or not. I have to visit this on a regular basis. I don't know if it's because I'm teaching and talking and mouthing all the time. Did I just get into the rhythm of it? Or, or I'm just that's just me. But I have to revisit this over and over and over again. I mean, just two weeks ago. Is, is it that we've just fallen into some kind of morality or some kind of rhythm in life? Or, and I'm not talking about feelings. I'm not, like, Ooh, I love God. I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about that what I'm doing is because I really do want to honor him. It made me think of two verses outside of this, because Jesus said to me, do, "Do you love me? Are you doing this?" Notice what he said, "Do you love me more than these?" Now that, that pronoun there uh, you tell how weird I am, I like pronouns, because you don't know what they refer to at first. And in this case, I have no idea. Okay He so said, "Do you love me more than these? Is Jesus referring to the fish? I mean, there, notice this, you know, there are 150, Marty's made a point of this. You know, there's 153 of them. I don't know why they uh, count that. I don't know. But there's 153 fish, okay? Do you love me more than these, Peter? Uh, here's another thought is, is the these referring to the other disciples? Do you love me more than these guys? Now, there's, there could be some evidence for that. Do you, do you love me more than these guys? You know why? Because Peter had said in Matthew 26, if the rest of these guys leave you, I won't. Remember that? How'd that work out? <laughs> Remember he said, if everybody else deserts you, not me. Or in, in John uh, uh, 13, 37, he says, I... If ever, I'll lay my life down for you. <laughs> that didn't happen. Is it, is it that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? You still think you love me more than these guys? You still got that in your head, Peter? Is Jesus again trying to, to level the field here? I want you to love me, not be in competition with everybody else. To me, that's a possibility here. Jesus, you you love me more than these? I'm I'm putting some inflection here, right? Because this was actually spoken. Do you you love me more than these? I I don't think so, Peter. Don't 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 be competitive. You know, I used to be real. Well, still I'm competitive. I don't like to play games because once I start playing a game, I want to win. I like to win. I don't like to play. I like to win. But I remember going to college, and I played tennis and played some other sports like that, and I was very competitive. But then when I got to becoming a, a, a person going to college and trained for ministry, I wanted to be the best Christian ever. Anybody ever want to do that? I don't see many hands going up. <laughs> y'all are, y'all are a very, y'all are a very uh, what shall we say, adjusted people. <laughs> are very adjusted. Adjusted wrongly, but adjusted. <laughs> but, but that kind of competitiveness. Love. Do you love me more than these? Do, do you and I live with this primary motive? Or has it devolved into, can, morality? Let me, I'm going to ask, go, go to the book, go to your right. Go to the book of Revelation. That's the last one. And I've always been fascinated because of this motive. In Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus, through the angel, is writing to these churches. I just have to revisit this. Notice what he says. In Revelation chapter 2, it's to the church at Ephesus. And he begins at verse 2, and he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. that You cannot tolerate evil men. And put those to the test who call themselves apostles. And they're not, and you've been found false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. You would think, at the end, that goes, "At a boy." What is he saying for? I, I got a complaint: You've left your first love. Look at the, look at the resume there perseverance. They've endured. They don't tolerate evil people. They're doctrinally accurate. They they, they test those who claim to be apostles. They're doctrinally correct. They persevere. Not enough. Not enough. You've left your first love. You can do all those things because it's meaningful to you or it's helpful to you. But not In love, Jesus says, I've got this. Now, he gets pretty. He says, therefore, remember where you've fallen and repent. Unless I'm going to remove your lampstand. That's bad. (laughs) Could be several things there, but they're all bad. (laughs) You don't want your lampstand removed. How How many times do we settle for doctrinal accuracy or for persevering and hanging tough? Or for making people stand up and be what they're supposed to be, but not because of love. You've left it. Now, there's lots of discussion here. We don't have time to unpack it. But you can do all those things. And what my dad would say, back when his friend, you'd be cleaner than a hound's tooth, which I don't know how clean they are, but accurate, doctrinal. Just fine. And be meaner than a rattlesnake. You left your first love. What does that mean? I think it means that the priority is love to Jesus. And what I'm doing is an expression of my love to Jesus. Not to defend a doctrine. Not to hold people's feet to the fire. Not to show people that I am biblically literate. Or not to show people how much determination I've got to be faithful to Jesus. Those are all good things. And they can be done without love. That's what's frightening. All of them. In fact, I I regularly will ask myself, am I doing what I'm doing because it's my career? Am I doing what I'm doing because, you know, I got a 401k at the Church of God. Or am I doing what I'm doing because it's an accurate expression of my love for Jesus? I don't know about you, but I have to visit that regularly. Maybe you don't, but I do. Another another passage here, real quick, and I, I just I want to take the time to do this. Um, Yesterday, uh, be turning your Bibles if you will to Galatians. Go to your table of contents. That's in the front. Don't, I didn't want to cheat you there. Go to the front. If you don't know where the... That's okay. Galatians 11.08. Uh, go, go to Galatians chapter 5. This whole idea, Jesus, you love it. He, he's going to establish the primary motive. Yesterday, um, we're flying back from Florida, and I said to Becky, you know what today is, don't you? She goes, Saturday. And I said, I know, but there's a special day today. This is how geeky my world is, okay? It's in my calendar, in my calendar. Yesterday was John Wesley's birthday. He's 314 years old. I sent him a, Becky asked me just, and then she's smart. Did you send him a card? (laughs) So I said, I'm not talking to you about this anymore. Now that you've just been so mean. I'm geeky. I've got his birthday in there. I know the day he died, you know, the whole deal. I got all these other other things. I will tell you this. So when I put your birthday in, I never put an end date. I just want you to know that, okay? I never put an end date in there, okay? So if I know where your birthday is, no end date. Wesley, though, in England, which was a very religious country and, you know, had their own national church and, and uh, you know very religious uh, talked about or wrote about that even the devil is orthodox he knows the truth and he believes it go look at the book of mark those demons confess the most accurate theology i know who you are you're the son of the living god they're pretty accurate and so Wesley, Wesley always said his favorite verse here in Galatians chapter 5 was this. I, I love this. He said for in verse 6 of chapter 5, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You know what? Wesley said this. I think he's right. I, I, he said it this way. I want to say it. He said that Luther and Calvin in the Reformation who elevated rightly so, that we are justified or made right with God by faith, justification by faith. Before, with the Roman Catholic system, you're justified, made right by your works. It's right to say we're justified by faith alone. He said they went too far. They went way too far. Because they elevated faith above love. I want to say it this way, Mr. Wesley, God bless him. I don't think they went far enough If faith makes us right, it has to be faith that's working through love. Or it's what the demons have. The kind of faith that James 4 says, they believe that God is one, they do well. And shudder. They believe. Somebody asked me one time, well that word believe, there's different than the, no it's not. Same exact word as John three sixteen for God's glory. Whoever believes in same word. There's something more here. Wesley said it this way: that faith is the handmaiden of love. That if one's faith doesn't actuate, doesn't cause, doesn't doesn't develop, doesn't doesn't cause one to live in love, that it's wrong. I've, I've, I've said this before, you know, in the, in the Reformation, there are all these sola, sola, sola fide, only by faith, sola, sola gloria, uh, sola da gloria, uh, only to God's glory, sola scriptura. Uh, there were five solas. You know, not one of them was love. I don't think they went, I think, Western, I think they didn't go far enough. Yes, scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, grazia, uh, uh, sola grazia. Those are all right. You bet. They didn't go far enough. This has been one of my life verses because I've said, Cliff, you know a lot, you believe a lot, you understand a lot, but is that faith working through love? Nothing, here's what, here's what Paul said, nothing else matters. Not your doctrinal accuracy, not your biblical understanding, not your keeping your nose clean so that your church doesn't get you in trouble. faith that's working actuated I'm just going to tell you that's the difference in the faith that's talked about in James 4 that's the devils and the kind of faith that makes us right with God the faith that works through love so Jesus is taking Peter back to the primary essential motive Man, I've done things and I'm sure you have too for any other reason other than love. I've done it because I wanted to look smart or I wanted to look good or I wanted people to notice. And if what Jesus said and what Paul said, if you have all faith, remove mountains and have not love or you can speak in every tongue there is and you don't have love, you're just a l- lousy gong Or if you have the gift of prophecy and you understand everything in the future. Or if you have all wisdom and understand all mysteries. He's pretty straight when he says, you're Cliff, nothing. So what is love? Just give you a final little definition. We're out of here. We'll finish the next one next week. I got two more weeks. Love, by Aquinas, who was a great theologian, said this, it's to will the best for another. <clears throat> it's to will the best for another. It doesn't mean feelings. It doesn't have to have them. If you have them, great. In Louisiana, we call that yap. That's extra. <laughs> it's to will the best for another. You did that with your kids. You did things at times you didn't want to do. I mean, I've heard it said, I don't think my dad ever he never, you know, parents don't always like to correct their kids. But they will the best for them and do it. Love is to will the best. So if we're if we're saying that could I live in such a way that I will the best? That's for Jesus. If you ever think about that, do do I will the best that that his name would be honored? That he would be blessed and praised. That his that his name, I love what Doug said when Doug prayed. He said that, that we would make him famous. I'm going to do this. I don't feel like doing it necessarily. You know, I don't really feel like doing this right now. But I will the best here for Jesus so I can make him famous. I want people to be impressed with him. I was thinking the other day, I'm kind of a worrywart, just... I don't know where the wart part comes in. I just know the worry part. Yeah, I don't know about the warts, but I know the worry part. But as I was reflecting on it, praying and thinking, I thought, you know what? This is, this is not honoring to Jesus, Cliff. It makes him look like a bad father. Right? When my dad told me he'd take care of me, as I think him today on Father's Day, I didn't worry. I knew he'd take care of me. See, if I, if I want to make Jesus famous, I want him to look like a good dad. And, and, I, and I'm learning to will the best for him. To will the best for his kingdom, for his glory, for his honor. So here, here's, here's the application. Been a long time coming here. It's coming. Someday. Here we go. Well, this week, you identify something you're doing that needs the motive of love as its basis. You need this. You, you say, you know what? I'm doing it, but I don't know if it's the motive. How can you continue in the action with the motive of seeking the best for another? Maybe, maybe you could say today, I, I want to do something for my wife or my friend or my husband or uh, my neighbor. I want to ask you to consider also, would you be willing to think, is there something to do that's the best? I know this sounds a little nutty, but it's true. For Jesus this week. I want to do this to make him famous. It doesn't mean you're going to do something dramatic. It might mean you just quit worrying this week about that thing. Are you determined to to live in joy so that other people say, you're different. But to commit your life this week to doing something for another. The best for them in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Uh, we've all failed like Peter. Some of us feel like we may have even failed worse. But you bring us back to those places to heal us, not hurt us. And you use that time to draw us closer. There's some of us maybe who we've been busy and we're worn out Because the motive of love has somehow slipped away. Help us this week to find one thing that we can do consciously and aware that would be loving to you. Seeking your best. Or maybe it's a family member or friend. Draw these truths into our hearts, not just for this moment, not just for today, but for our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.